So today we're going to talk about what I'm going to call three-dimensional theology. Um, this is something I've been working on, so you guys get to be my, my beta testers, my guinea pigs, and, and, uh, and this is something I've completely invented. No, I, I, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm trying to find a way of, of, of answering this question because it's always bothered me. And um, Why is it that two Christian churches could have almost identical doctrinal statements while one produces legalistic Pharisees and the other produces sober-minded disciples of Jesus Christ who trust Christ alone for their salvation and their lives are marked by the good works produced by the Holy Spirit. How is this possible? Why does this happen? I mean, you look at evangelicalism and it just seems like there's so much of it you know, that you can say, if you look at their doctrinal statement, we, we're supposedly have a lot in common, right? But why is it that there's just something is so radically different we don't feel at home? And so the answer I've come up with, is kind of picture here, is that theology is three-dimensional. It's not two-dimensional. Let me give an example of two-dimensional theology. Church A believes in the Trinity, the deity of Christ, biblical inerrancy, baptism, salvation by grace alone, the regenerated life, and Christ's second coming, right? Church B. Do you see any differences here? No. Why? Because this is really just a two-dimensional cursory look at their theology and doctrine. Okay? But here's the deal. Uh, church A is producing legalistic Pharisees while Church B is uh, producing true disciples. Yeah, if, you, if you think that being a Pharisee automatically uh, involves somebody who wears sackcloth and ashes and um, their face is wrinkled because they never smile and they're always gritting their teeth, that, 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 isn't, that isn't the case. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because okay? this is where I'm saying theology is three-dimensional. Okay? And I'm going to hopefully answer this question because I look, at, I, I study, I research, I listen to a lot of sermons uh, and, and I'm for maybe my obsession theologically is with evangelicalism because I came out of it and want to find a way to communicate the gospel to it effectively. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a conference for church planters. Okay? Um, if, you've, if you've looked at my museum of idolatry, many of the, it seems like there's a whole growing group of churches that have gone off the deep end from a marketing point of view to grow their churches. And what I found is that there was a common theme of all of these, uh, these churches, and they were connected to uh, an organization called churchplanners.com. Okay, churchplanners.com, they hold an annual conference, and it's called Evolve. Wouldn't it be fun if Lutherans had a conference and we'll just call it Stay Put? <laughs> I mean, isn't that kind of like the modern-day uh, interpretation of here I stand? You know, you know, these guys are all about changing the church. And so what happens is, is that you know, th these are the types of churches that do the 30-day sex challenge. Remember that hit in the news a couple weeks ago? And uh, to which I basically say, 30 days, you guys are wimps. We can do better than that. Um, but... You know, it's all about these extreme marketing ideas to try to grow their church. And, what, and so what I wanted to do is get out behind, from behind the laptop, head out there and talk with these pastors face-to-face -face, and try to see if I can wrap my head around why they're doing what they're doing. Because when you look at their doctrinal statements, 
for the most part, you'd say, no, it's pretty orthodox. I mean, there's nothing glaring. It's not like they're Mormons. You know, they believe that Jesus and Lucifer are the brothers and that, that God is named Elohim and lives near Starbase Kolob. It's not, that's not what they're teaching. Okay? Instead, you know, you, you just from a theologic, cursory theological point of view, you're sitting there going, they supposedly believe the same things I do, but we're worlds apart. Why? Okay? So, going with the principle that theology is actually pretty simple, um, there's, a, there's a, two principles that they teach us in theological classes regarding how to study theology. One is the material principle. And so, this is your... Uh, this is one of your big theological terms. Put this away in your notes. Pull this out at a party and you'll impress your friends. Material principle, when we're talking about it theologically, it's the central teaching of a religion, religious tradition or movement, denomination, church, religious body, or organization. If properly identified and understood, the material principle helps people understand all the teachings of a religious group. All of the tenets of a doctrinal system can be explained in relationship to its material principle. Okay? Dr. Rosenblatt, back in the day when I was in college, I remember Silence of the Lambs came out, and uh, he liked to use this analogy. You've know, you got the Hannibal Lecter uh, character in prison, and Jodie Foster's character uh, comes to talk to him because she's trying to hunt down a, a serial killer, and uh, Hannibal Lecter says to her, what is his essence? What is his essence? You want to you find this guy? You have to understand what his essence, his heart is. Okay, theologies have an essence, and that's what the material principle is. It's the center and heart of it. Now, theologies also have what are called formal principles, and this is the authority which forms or shapes the doctrinal system of a religion, religious body, movement, or tradition. And so formal principles tend to be texts or revered leaders of a religion or tradition. Okay? The Mooney religion, Sung Young Moon, you know, all, every, all of his teachings canonized become the formal pr uh, principle of the Moonies. Okay? The Reformed tradition, anyone here want some bonus points on the final? Um, you didn't know there was a final? Okay, um, yeah, we need to talk. Um, what's, the, what's, the, what's the center, what's the material principle of the Reformed faith? Material principle, we'll go with material first. Does anyone know what the center of, of Calvinism is? Sovereignty of God, that's it. Material principle of Calvinism is either the sovereignty of God or you can argue that it's the glory of God. Okay? And so that's the center and heart of their theology. Everything else, like, a, you know, like take a rock and throw it into a pond, and when the rock hits, it, you know, it ripples out. Okay? So for them, the center of their theology is the sovereignty or glory of God. Formal principle, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Although we Lutherans would go, that's not exactly true for the Calvinists. Because they, uh, they have this sanctified view of reason that comes into play. That kind of, they kind of backdoor that in. So that's, we would say that's part of their formal principle. But they would say, no, 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 no. We'd say, yes, 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 yes. Okay. All right. So here's the deal. Remember those, uh, those two churches? What, uh, so here's all these little doctrinal statements. They believe in the Trinity, biblical inerrancy, second coming, regenerated life, deity of Christ, baptism, salvation by grace. It's all just all over the place if you just take these things and you look at it two-dimensionally, right? And, and some might be overplayed while others are downplayed. You just don't know. So all theologies pick a central doctrine and order and emphasize accordingly. Okay? And this is an important 
thing to understand. The center of your theology determines the object of your faith. This is a hard and fast rule. I've never seen this one broken. The center of your theology determines the object of your faith. So pick one. What are we going to have as our center? Well, when I went to Georgia, to the Evolve Conference, one of the things I did is I talked with a lot of pastors. Okay? This is an interesting movement, this whole church planner movement. The average, pers- the average pastor that was there was about 25 to 27 years old, married for a couple of years, has two small kids, dresses so much hipper and cooler than I ever did. And, you know, their big question when they're doing facial hair is whether or not to have a goatee or a soul patch. I don't know, thinking about soul patch. I wonder what that would do with me. Yeah. <laughs> the son says no. Um, and the, one of the things I was trying to do was get to the heart of this. And so I wanted to see how the gospel played into their theology. So I interviewed about two dozen of them informally. And one of my challenge questions to them was, when was the last time you preached the gospel, the message of Christ crucified for our sins, and rather than apply it to the unchurched people who are attending your churches, you actually applied it to the believers in your congregation. 100%. This is not an exce- there was no exceptions to this. 100% of the pastors I interviewed answered the question with these words. The believers in my congregation already know that. That told me the gospel is nowhere near the center of their theology. So I asked them some more questions, try to figure out what's going on. So many of these pastors that I interviewed, I also had the opportunity of listening to many of their sermons over the past couple of years. And so I was able to dialogue with them about their sermon series. Pastor, I noticed that uh, over the last year you did a sermon series on how to have greater romance, how to balance your budget, how to have uh, perfectly behaved children, um, things, you know, things like this. Why is it that you're preaching these sermons? You know, why, what's the whole point? Well, you have to understand that what we really want people to do is come to our church and experience a changed life. It's a try-before-you-buy mentality regarding evangelism. Here's the idea. You come to church, you're an unbeliever, we're going to give you principles from the Bible to make your life better. You go home and you apply these principles, your life gets better, and you're going to go, you know, I've got to try that Jesus Christ guy. So you go to church and you make a commitment to become a Christ follower and then really buy into the whole program. What's the center of this theology? Themselves, you can make that argument. The regenerated life. Okay, now, you're talking traditional Baptist theology. Okay, traditional Baptist theology has as its center the regenerated life. These newer guys, it's not even that. It's actually the changed life. But you have the right idea, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of come, go like this. Now, watch what happens. In their theology, the regenerated or the changed life is their material principle and their formal principle, even though it's Scripture, it's Scripture understood as guidebook. One of the things that absolutely I found amazing in all of this was when I heard these guys teach heard them preach. It was how they used the Scriptures. Let us open up our Bibles and open to John chapter whatever, and we're going to read verse 17. Verse 17? 
verse. And in there was some imperative or whatever. Do this. And see, we're going to form an entire sermon around digging out this one particular sentence and this one particular principle that is practical and I can apply so that I can see progress in my life because the Bible is a guidebook for living. Salvation or conversion in the way these new, these new guys are talking is I have made a commitment to become a Christ follower. The, uh, most of these guys may have a couple years of Bible college, but most of them, the one thing they all have in common is they feel a very strong calling from God, almost like the Mormon burning in the bosom, to go out and reach the unchurched. They still have some idea that what the unchurched person needs to hear is that, that uh, Christ died for their sins. They, they still have that sense of it. But what happens is, is that the message of the Gospel, it was, it, let's, let's pretend you f- people in the back rows, you people are unchurched, you're unbelievers in this congregation. So here's how I would preach to you. Um, if you're here this morning and you feel that God is speaking to you, your marriage isn't as good as it could be. You need to jump onto this 30-day sex challenge. And you're feeling convicted. Well, I've got good news for you. Christ died for your sins, you people in the back. Everybody in the forward pews, this doesn't apply to you. Okay? So what I want you to do is bow your heads and, and pray this prayer with me. And if you, feel, if you feel God convicting you that you, you need to do these things, you people in the back, go ahead and raise your hand if, if you feel God's talking to you. But you people up here, this doesn't apply to you. I am not making this up. Okay? Now, here's how this is all... Let me, let me work this out. So, in the regenerated life or the changed life, baptism, a better family, better career, better finances, better health, those are all the themes you're going to get Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Okay? And this stuff over here, Trinity, Deity of Christ, Salvation by Grace, that's just information that's doctrinal, but it's not practical. It has no bearing on your practical everyday life. It's important for you to know that stuff. But once you got it, you got it. Move on. Okay? We got more important things. You got you to work. You, you, you guys who are overweight <clears throat> need to lose weight. And what we're going to do next week is we're going to have a class on how to teach you how to, how to have a budget and cut up your credit cards. Um, and those of you who want to have a more fulfilling career, we're going to give you principles that you can apply at work so that you're honoring God in your work. And, uh, and you will need to honor God in your family too. And baptism, this is important because what you're doing in your baptism is you're going to let the whole world know that you've made a decision to be a Christ follower. Now, somebody pointed this out. This is just a merry-go-round of works. Okay? This is a playground of religion. And I said the center of your theology determines without fail the object of your faith. In this material and formal principle, you are the heart, you are the center, you are the object of your faith. You know you are saved based upon your progress, your good works, your changed life, and all of the above. And you, there's no point. Actually, this is interesting. I actually figured out why now Rick Warren twists God's word so badly. Because with the material, a formal principle as the Bible is a guidebook, there's no point. You don't have to actually correctly exegete what it's saying. You just need to get in the right ballpark about what the biblical principle is at place that you can apply it to your life. 
doesn't matter if you're using a paraphrase or a translation. You just need to know what the principle is. Right? Material principle, changed life, formal principle, guidebook is le- as Bible is guidebook. Jesus just gets you in the door. In this theology, Christ crucified, this is the door that gets you in, and it's water under the bridge, and you don't get to return to it. It only applies to the people in the back. When I ask these questions, you know, Pastor, you know, I said you're preaching the law to these people. I tell these to the pastor. And uh, the purpose of the law, according to scriptures, is to show us our sin. How are you doing in applying these principles? That was another one of my follow-up questions in these interviews. Well, God knows my heart. Okay, I'm going to give you a rough translation. God knows my heart when the way they're applying it. It means something like this. I'm doing my best. God grade, that doesn't matter. I don't have to be perfect. God knows that I'm, that I, that I'm sincere. My follow-up statement to always, when somebody says God knows my heart, I say, yeah, he does, because Jeremiah, the prophet, said that your heart is deceitfully wicked. You have to turn the, ha- the law up with these people to get them to wake up. <laughs> do, do, I ever, do I ever get hit? Um, there was one interview, that, there was one, one of the pastors I was talking to. You remember the guy back a few weeks, months ago, that I showed up there? He, in his, one of his church service, said that, uh, that our church doesn't exist for believers, it, believes, it exists for unbelievers. You know, and how angry he was. He said, if, if, you, if you accepted Jesus Christ last week, then that was the last week that this church existed for you. His name is Pastor Stephen Furtick. Okay, he's a 28-year-old rock star uh, in the church planner movement. I actually had an opportunity to talk with him, but he's the only pastor I've ever met that has a security detail. Okay? So while I was discussing things with him, I asked him the question, Pastor Furtick, when was the last time you preached the gospel to the believers in your congregation? He did something with his hand, and two guys, big guys, <laughs> came up on either side of him and then got just slightly between me and him. And the look on their face was something like this, Boy! You ask another dumb question like that, we're going to knock you down. That was the end of the conversation, pretty much. So I haven't been physically hurt, but I'm, I'm hoping. <laughs> okay. So in this thinking, the Gospels for Unbelievers focuses on doing things to please God, and this is actually a confusion of law and gospel. Okay? I would say this is a modern-day incarnation of what we see in the Galatian heresy. Okay? And I'm being kind by the way I said it. I'm going to show you just a brief video from one of these types of churches. And what I'll do is I'll play it and then I'll step it backwards so that you can kind of see what I'm saying. Watch this video. This is a video from a church in Amarillo, Texas called Victory Church. And when you, when you're going to see something scroll by really quack quick. It's talking about victory in all these different areas of life. And this is an advertisement for their upcoming um, fashion show that they're having as an outreach. Okay, victory in finances, victory in marriage, victory in health, victory in kids, victory in work, victory in family, victory in business, victory in life. This is a church. Woo! Dang, these people are relevant. Okay. Here's, the, here's, here's what this merry-go-round looks like. Center is my changed life, and you just go around and around. Marriage, finances, career, relationships, health, parenting, marriage, finances, career. There's no Christ. Anyway, remember we talked about progress? Okay, the idea Christ gets you in the door. Here is perfection. 
here's what's your responsibility is to keep growing and growing and growing and changing your life and getting closer and closer to that perfection. And uh, Jesus is coming, so you better get busy. And uh, good luck. You're going to need it. Yes! <laughs> the question, if you didn't hear it, she says, isn't this the same thing as Roman Catholicism except for done a lot worse? Yeah. It's the same idea. Where Roman Catholicism got off the rails is when they took Christ crucified away for our sins, turned the Mass into something we do, a re-sacrifice of Christ, and then it became a cult of strange good works. Okay? You know, the, the event, this is an American version of it, or I would say Catholicism is more of a medieval version of it. Yeah, there's a big movement of evangelicals into Catholicism. And, yeah, and into Eastern Orthodoxy. There's a, there's a, we've lost a few good uh, Lutherans to Eastern Orthodoxy, which I haven't quite figured out what the, what's at the heart of that. So, All right, let's continue. So here we go. Here's the question right now. Um, what's the material principle of this church? So here we go. In Lutheranism as a whole, it, our theologians would argue that our material principle is, is uh, what, fifth article of the Augsburg Confession, the one by which everything stands or falls, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by the merits of Christ alone. And uh, you start talking in this type of language and your evangelical friends are going to go, what? Justification, that's what I do when I, you know, I've got to cover my my assets after I've done something wrong. I've got to try to find a way to justify it. You know. Formal principle, sola scriptura. So, John said, our material principle is, is really Christ died for our sins. I would say, our, if you take our theological words, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by the merits of Christ alone, you can take that further and apply Occam's razor and cut the words out. And the simplest way of understanding it is Christ died for our sins. But you have to explain a little bit about what that means, especially nowadays. Thanks to the emergent church, they don't even believe that Jesus did that. You know, who knows what they believe. Um, so, 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. Rosenblatt points this out, and he's so right. You want to know what the gospel is? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to give you the most concise definition of the gospel that you could possibly hope for. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which also you stand. Notice Paul's assumption here with the Corinthian church is that the gospel is something that isn't just yesterday that got me into the door into this wonderful parade of good works that I have to do, the gospel is something on which I presently today stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you unless you've believed in vain. Now, Gary Habermas, who is a good evangelical scholar, probably one of the best uh, apologists out there regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has some really good works and articles he've, he's written about uh, verses 3 and 4. He contends, and I agree with him, based upon the language that we see here in the Greek, that verses 3 and 4 make up literally the oldest creed in Christendom. Okay, we, we, uh, we say the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. And here in 
1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, this is the earliest creed. Okay? It, it has that whole grammatical structure to it. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Notice in this tiny little ancient, ancient creed, we see a material and a formal principle. Material principle, Christ died for our sins. Formal principle, according to the Scriptures. You see them both at play. So if you really want to boil Christianity down to a material and formal principle that you can point to scripturally, it's this, Christ died for our sins. Formal principle, according to the Scriptures. Not traditions of men. Not funky leaders. Christ died for our sins. Okay, so material principles, Christ died for our sins. Yeah, he's referring, that's a good question. Is he referring here only to the Old Testament? Now, I'm in the camp, theologically, I'm in the camp of people who think that those liberal scholars who say that the apostles didn't write down their Gospels until 20 and 30 years after Jesus was crucified, I think that's nuts. It just doesn't make a bit of sense. The apostles, Jesus' disciples were Jews. They were people of the book. Okay? To, the, to have this idea that, they, that Christianity was just a word-of-mouth religion until somebody said, you know what, we better write these things down before these guys die. They were living under threat of death from the, from the day Jesus was crucified. They're going to put this stuff down and they're going to put it down quickly. So, I believe that it's not just referring to the Old Testament. I believe at that point, when Paul received this creed, there was two Gospels that were already penned. Mark and probably Matthew. Luke comes a little bit later and John comes farther than that. So he's not just making reference to the Old Testament Scriptures. He's also making reference to new Scriptures, which we have, which are, the, are at least two of the Gospels at that point. So I would, I would, I'm in the camp that says that no sooner than Jesus uh, you know, ascended to heaven, then somebody got out some paper and ink and started writing some of this stuff down. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think you can definitely make the case that Paul has as the center of his theology is Christ crucified. He seems to be obsessed with this whole gospel thing. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. It's not practical. Who needs that? what Pastor Rody said this morning. Like Jesus honking one into the mud. You mean to tell me that I'm saved by some guy nailed to a cross between two thieves dying a thieves' death? Come on. But to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of the world, for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He didn't say we preached. In the Greek, it's present active indicative. We preach. Paul, writing to the Roman church, 
chapter 1 says, I long to come to you so that I may preach the gospel to you. This is an already established church. We preach Christ crucified. To, a, to Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, it's foolishness. That's everybody. But those who are called, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Continuing on, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Spit, mud, blood, crown of thorns, cross. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God. But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech, or great marketing campaigns, or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you. Nothing! Tell this to these pastors and they'll go, well, he talked about more than just that. Yeah, and every single thing he ever talked about aside from that always flowed from that first. You want to talk about marriage? Paul starts at the cross and shows how Christ crucified plays out in your marriage, in your work, even to a slave by the name of Onesimus. So, if Christ crucified for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, our, is our material and formal principle, then it's the center of everything, and everything else flows out from that. You want to justify somebody, you want them to trust in Christ, you preach Christ crucified for our sins. You want to sanctify a believer, you preach Christ crucified for our sins. The law cannot sanctify you. It's the Gospel. See how the dif- what's the difference here? Christ isn't then relegated off into some, you know, some starting point somewhere years ago, back when you made a decision to become a Christ follower. He is now the object of your faith because he's the center of your theology. I see nothing. I know nothing except for Christ and Him crucified. And in case you think I'm nuts here, because you know scriptures. I mean, there's a lot in scripture. Okay. Let me remind you of the words of our Lord. John 5, 36. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish is the very works that I do. They bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. And you have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. And you do not have His word abiding in you. Let me stop for a second there. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees. I think it would be foolish to say that the Pharisees didn't know the Torah or that they didn't know the prophets. They didn't know their scriptures. Of course they knew their scriptures. They knew them so much they were written on the lentils of their doors, placed in little tiny pieces of paper and stuck in a little box and right on their forehead. Well-versed in the scriptures. 
And yet Jesus has the audacity to say to these men, you do not have His Word abiding in you. Why? For you do not believe Him who He sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's these that bear witness of Me. And you are unwilling to come to Me that you may have life. You all seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Alright, is there anyone here who hasn't seen it? Okay, I'm going to ruin the movie for you. I apologize. It's been 12 years since the movie's been out. You've had plenty of time. This is your own doing. The movie The Sixth Sense is a movie that you cannot watch the same way twice. The first time you see it, you think you know what the movie's about. You think you've got the whole thing figured out. You've got Bruce Willis. His character is, is, is like a psychologist or therapist of sorts, and he's helping this troubled kid. And the kid has a problem. He sees dead people. Okay, and Bruce Willis's, Willis's marriage is really suffering. There just seems to be a lack of communication going on here. And as much as he tries to reach out to her, he just can't quite get over the hump and make it so that he can make this marriage thing work out. And then as the movie progresses, right at the very end, you come to realize Bruce Willis has been dead the entire movie. The entire movie. And you go, didn't see that one coming. That changes everything, right? So then you go back and you watch the movie a second time because you just have to do this. You go back and you watch it the second time knowing now what the punchline is. You sit there and go, wow, this movie just comes to life. There's things I didn't even catch the first time through because I thought he was alive. Now that I know he's dead, it's like, wow, I get it. Right? Okay, Scripture is the same way. It's the same way. If you read the Scriptures and you think that in them you have life by getting on the rat wheel and doing all these things to please God and you think it's a guidebook for living and you think that you're pleasing God because of all the great things that you're doing in your marriage and your business and your finances and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you've missed the whole point. Why? Because the whole book is actually about Jesus, it's not about you. When you read the Scriptures thinking that you're like the Pharisees going to apply all these principles, it's the first time through on the sixth sense. It's not until you understand that Jesus was dead the whole time for your sins, my sins, that the book opens up and you get it. Let me read another story. Behold, this is after Jesus was raised from the dead. I know we're in Lent, so this is a premature passage to be reading at this time of the year. Bear with me. Jesus has been raised. Two of his disciples are on the road to Emmaus. We're in Luke 24. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were conversing with each other all about these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. A little miracle happening there. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? 
And they stood still and looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of these things which has happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Well, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word and sight of God and, and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was, he was, it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since these things happened, but also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. We missed it. We missed it. We thought it was about us and, and us being part of some earthly kingdom. We didn't see it was all about him the whole time. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he was going to go farther. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. Broke the bed. Wait a second, you're Jesus! And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, We're not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. Hmm. I have an employee that does that to me every now and then. I'll tell her something. She'll go, hmm. I don't know what that means. He was explaining the scriptures to us. What was he explaining? That it was about him. And they rose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. So here's the deal. A lot of people miss the overarching theme of the Scriptures. Okay? If, uh, this is just kind of an example. I mean, the little timeline here. So this is not designed to be completely inclusive. But... You know, in, in the scriptures we read the story of Adam, then we read the story of Noah, then we read the story of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David. And people make a fatal mistake when they think that all of these little things are just disconnected little stories. So when I'm preaching about Adam, I need to preach about Adam, right? Because that's what the story's about, right? Or when I'm preaching about Jacob, I need to preach about Jacob because that's what the story's about. Well, even in our own literature, if you've read the books, The Lord of the Rings, You've got the Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, the Return of the King. I mean, you have different scenes, right? But isn't the overall overarching story of the Lord of the Rings the battle between good and evil and how ultimately good prevails over evil, right? You can make that the overarching thing. 
What's the overarching theme of the Scriptures? Christ's redemptive work for sinners in all ages. These are not isolated stories. These all play into the big story. So, Adam points us to Christ. Noah points us to Christ. Everybody points us to Christ because it's actually all about His work, not ours. Yes. Yeah. 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 Now, go, go to Genesis 15 and look at Melchizedek. <laughs> that'll, that'll, that'll make bend your mind. Yeah, no... Yeah, high priests, no earthly parents, no beginning, no end, and he's known for his bread and wine. So you see what I'm saying? And if you think I'm crazy, why do we have genealogies in the Gospels? Okay? Look at this. Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah, and, to, and his brothers, and Judah was born Perez. Do any of these people sound familiar to you? Ah, I get it. All of these guys mentioned in the Old Testament. We're following the line of the one true king. The one true God. The one true Redeemer. And His work. So we can truly say, I can know nothing among you except for Christ crucified for our sins. That's what the whole story is about. And you want to progress in sanctification, then know nothing except for Christ crucified for your sins.